Hey there, Grim Portents and Cursed Places. Welcome to another episode of Campaign Spotlight. I'm Production Master Riley. And I'm Dungeon Inspector Jake. This week, we're chatting with Prim, who's a former player of mine who played an incredible evil druid in a long-running campaign. In this episode, we'll be talking about the dungeon world system and giving your players more control over storytelling. We're looking forward to hearing about a Powered by the Apocalypse system. Let's roll initiative. In order to understand Tyne, one must first understand the moment of its creation. Born in a mix of the lattices of order and the disruption that chaos brought, Amashed and Lamashed brought one thing into our world. Themselves. From there, everything else bloomed. The land spurted from under them, flinching from their eternal combat. The water from their tears. Then, other places began to appear around them. The spirit world as we know it now bloomed inside of the ocean and brought itself out. The fey worlds forming from the sky. Thousands of years, these three forces spun around each other in a vast array and we find ourselves locked in the combat of Amash and Lamash, the great and eternal mothers of our world. That combat ended a long time ago. Um, since then, new gods have sprouted, dozens if not hundreds, we've lost count. Thousands of civilizations have moved up and down. The world moves very quickly here in time. The borders between the spirit world have long since been erased. The fae constantly invade. There is nothing but torment and loss and war. This is where our heroes find themselves, at the edges of a society, a series of societies that have all but collapsed. This is where a young priest of a long dead god hears a message that she should go further. Okay, that was fucking incredible. Um, I was I was psyched to have you on the podcast because I knew that like your campaign would be kind of wild, and this does not disappoint. Yeah, it's out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. So, uh, would you mind introducing yourself and uh, telling the audience who you are? Yeah, uh, my name is uh, Primrose Berglund. Um, I guess in uh, RPG terms, I've been playing games for, I guess, uh, 13 years now. I uh, bought my first D&D set when I was 11. Um, and yeah, I've been playing, uh, I've been more or less in a campaign since. Um, it's my favorite hobby. It's the only thing I really do in my spare time other than like read. Uh, to be honest, it's my favorite hobby as well. <laughs> Do you mind telling us a little bit about this campaign in particular? Yeah, um, so this campaign didn't have like a specific name. I don't tend to name my campaigns. Um, so I just called it Tyne, which is the, the name I gave the world. Um, it's ran in a system called uh, Dungeon World, which is by uh, um, Adam Cobal and Sage Latora. Um, it's uh, a... Powered by the Apocalypse game, um, which is like a specific sort of like modular rule set. Um, and um, yeah, uh, Tyne took about nine months to complete. Uh, it was played in person. Um, 
in somebody's dining room in Olympia, Washington. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, uh, five players at the end. We had a player join about halfway through and it mostly focused on, uh, sort of the relationship between, um, young actors, not always like young of age, but sort of like geologically young actors, um, trying to influence events that had happened like thousands of years before and like changed the course of history. Um, and like maybe rewrite the world they're in or maybe just like fix what's going wrong now. Okay, this game sounds absolutely fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit more about Dungeon World as a system? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I mentioned before that it's a uh, Powered by the Apocalypse system. And uh, that is a, a really fun rule set um, that... Uh, the sort of like basic way I would describe it is that it's a lot more, um, it's a lot like rules lighter as compared to something like uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Um, you only ever roll uh, like two dice at a time. Uh, you roll different numbers in, in Dungeon World in particular, but in Powered by the Public Games broadly, you roll 2d6 for everything. Um, uh, and from there, you. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, and from there, uh, you basically, like, uh, get three kinds of results. You get a failure, a mixed success, and a full success that uh, do various things depending on the moves you trigger. Um, it's a cool system in that you just kind of, like, talk. You just kind of tell a story back and forth until you hit a trigger event. Um, and then you, like, read a section of rules together and you, like, do the thing. Um, so, uh, as the DM, you almost never roll dice, and in fact, in most Power by Apocalypse games, you are, like, strictly told not to roll dice. Um, Dunder was a little different. There's damage in this game, which is not standard to Power by the Apocalypse systems, um, and for that, uh, oftentimes the DM, but if you want to be really mean, you can make your players roll it, which is what I did. Um, uh, and so, yeah, so, basically, you would find yourself in situations where you need to, like, uh, where, you know, you must, like, uh, you know, dodge, uh, like an arrow coming at you. And that's a specific move that you then roll some dice for plus a specific stat. And then you either have a full success, a mixed success or a failure. And a lot of those actually have like more narrative implications than like numbers implications. Um, uh, power of the apocalypse games don't tend to focus a ton on like the like crunchy parts, like damage. They're just kind of like, if you, you know, things do damage, uh, a lot of, you know, like, uh, Dungeon World characters have, it maxes out around 30 HP, um, at, like, highest levels. Um, uh, like, a dragon has 12 HP. Um, uh, they're, yeah, they're really, wow. like, yeah, 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 it's really, really different if you've never played them before. Um, but, like, you can't just hit a dragon, also. Like, there's, like, narrative stuff going on there, um, that you have to, like, like, narrative sizing is a, is a thing. Like, you can't just hit a dragon with a stick and expect it to do damage. Um, like narratively, uh, your dragon may differ. Um, but it, if you're thinking like a big wyvern, you like, you know, like wrap the ne its neck around a castle kind of dragon, uh, you're probably not going to like pierce a scale with a sword. So you got to go find a weapon that can kill a dragon. Um, and that's the sort of like gating there. Um, so if you are used to, it's really similar to D and D in a lot of ways. Um, but it really, uh, kind of, like, spreads out in, in the sort of, like, heavy emphasis on narrative over stats. 
So, is it reasonable to say that kind of the underlying expectations of how the world works and the fantasy tropes you're working with, that looks a lot like Dungeons and Dragons, Pathfinder, something like that. But kind of the mechanisms that you're using to resolve combat or other encounters, that's a lot more geared towards storytelling than rolling a huge handful of dice. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of familiar things. You're still a half-orc fighter. Um, you know, that kind of thing is still very true, but yeah, the, the actual, like, uh, trappings mechanically are, are very different in a way where the trappings fictionally are quite similar. And so, in, to your mind, how does this system make it easier to kind of treat D&D, or, let me try this question one more time. <laughs> in your mind, how does this system make it easier to tell a joint story in Dungeon World than in other systems? Like, how is it that this simplicity uh, helps everyone build a narrative in a way that's different from a lot of campaigns where the DM is kind of like the god king of the game? Yeah, yeah, there's, there's a few ways. Um, the first is actually is... is uh a way in which you, like, give up control in, in the, like, lack of rules as the DM. Um, in, in something like, uh, in something like Dun uh, Dungeons and Dragons, you might say, like, oh, uh, you know, the wizard fires a bolt of acid at you, uh, make a deck save. Um, in Dungeon World, the question is not, like, what, like, you don't ask the player to roll the dice. The, you immediately go, the wizard shoots lightning at you, what do you do? Um, hmm. And so the like the emphasis is just different, right? Uh, as the DM, I cannot force the players to roll dice at any point. They can say I do nothing, and then I get to roll damage and deal them damage. But a lot of the times they'll say I'm going to dodge out of the way, and then we go do that move. Um, so immediately you're giving up narrative control in just like the very basic functionality of like a turn. Um, broadly speaking, uh, I do think the game uh, in the sort of like in the simplicity of it. In the, like, lack of uh, specifics in the rule set as to, like, um, the, like, granularity of how things work, um, there's there's just, like, not a lot of, like, really granular detail in the way that, like, uh, in Dungeon, uh, Dungeons & Dragons you might find, like, somatic elements and spells. Things that are, like, really granular and, like, defined um, are really not that rigid in uh, Dungeon World. So a lot of the times you and your players have to go, like, well, how does your how does your guy cast spells? Is it, like, does he need to be able to talk? If if a, a goblin puts a gag in his mouth, like, does the spell not work anymore? Um, and, like, and trying to find the, like, truth in your fiction uh, becomes, like, immediately core. And that's just not a thing that I think, uh, once you kind of, like, get into the habits of, of playing a little bit more broadly and without such emphasis on the, like, godlike power of the DM, immediately becomes, like, very collaborative. Like, as soon as you ask, well, what do you think? Um, the game immediately sort of like folds in a very different way to where D&D sometimes just doesn't let you ask that question. And I think that's a really interesting point, that in Dungeon World, a lot of this is kind of spelled out explicitly, that collaboratively you and the players are going to need to figure out you know, what rules apply. And, and, and there's not, ah, we're going to go to Jeremy Crawford's Twitter and see if he's answered this question. 
And so, you know, where other systems kind of say, we've prescribed for every conceivable situation which dice you need to roll, and then they run into some trouble in situations they haven't thought of, it sounds like in Dungeon World, there's not even the expectation that they've prescribed which dice to roll in every setting. Yeah, yeah. I think um, it's maybe like time to like talk about a super specific detail from the game that I think is... This is the detail that I think carries a ton of Powered by the Apocalypse games broadly, but is like perfect in Dungeon World. There is like a catch-all, act-quickly move. Um, or like act-bravely move. It's called Defy Danger. And it's exactly like what it sounds like. Um, you can roll any of the base stats to roll Defy Danger. Um, depending on what you're doing. Uh, and then, I'm actually going to, if you don't mind, I, the, the rules text is beautifully, beautifully written. So I was going to pull it up really quick, if you don't mind. Um, one of the things I really like about this game is that uh, damage is, like, almost an afterthought. Uh, players can often, like, players will in some situations take damage, but the game does not instruct you beyond, like, character takes damage as to, like, what exactly that is the text i specifically want to quote is uh on a seven through nine you stumble hesitate or flinch the gm will offer you a worse outcome hard bargain or ugly choice and like what a phenomenal piece of like game design uh that like carries the entire game on its back in my opinion like like so it um you know like standard like statistical uh outcomes for uh 2d6 you're gonna roll this one the most uh almost all the time um, and the particulars of your story being full of worse outcomes, hard bargains, and ugly choices, um, like, is the meat of a Dungeon World campaign. And, like, this is the thing that I, I think is, like, so beautiful and, like, inescapable about, uh, the way the world has to work, is that, like, things always have to be able to, like, expand and get worse. Things just, like, you roll a seven, like, three or four times in a row, and the situation you're in is, like, four times larger than it was. Um, it's just, it, it's just a mess and it's really, really, uh, beautiful in the way that like, you have to give up so much control as a DM to just like, not be able to go like, oh, and you fail and you have to do the thing I wanted you to do anyways. When your players are just like, I'm going to do something stupid. Like I'm going to act with quick thinking and going to like try and like, you know, uh, conjure up something to get my way out of this situation. Like. You just have to go like, okay, yeah, there's there's got to be something going on here. Um, and yeah, in that particular way, I think Dungeon World really emphasizes uh, the, the player's ability to shape the narrative. Can you give an example from your campaign where someone rolled the seven through nine and at one of these worse outcomes, hard bargains or ugly choices kind of really amped up the stakes? Yeah, yeah, um, they happen all the time. Um, let's see, I'm trying to find, there's, there's a couple of situations in which players, uh, I like to make players choose whether to, uh, lose limbs or lose an object they care about a lot. Um, uh, and, uh, there are a few specific examples in which this happened, um, I believe, uh, You'll have to forgive me. This campaign was four years ago, so I might get the player wrong. But there was a there. Uh, we had a wizard in the campaign um, named uh, Wolfric, um, later Arlen, and uh, Arlen was <laughs> invested in like deeply dangerous dark magic. 
um, to uh, resurrect his dead brother. Um, very Full Metal Alchemist style. Um, and uh, in doing so, we went full Full Metal Alchemist and said, like, uh, you reach for, like, I believe it was the soul of your brother. Um, and, in the, and, like, something had gone wrong with the spell and, like, this, like, portal that had been created to... We wrote a spell just for, like, Wolfric to be able to, like, bind souls. Um, one of the things that I love about Dungeon World is it encourages you to write your own moves. Um, and at one point it had gone wrong and, uh, we had to say, like, do you reach in, uh, to this, like, like ethereal nothingness and pull out your brother's soul or do you, and let it crush your arm or do you let this go forever? Um, like, but you know, the spell doesn't like catastrophically explode. Like, what do you pick? What, what did Wolfric end up picking? Uh, he lost his arm. Um, he never did get his brother back. <laughs> he, yeah, he failed the, the roles later in the campaign. I was mean. I introduced the... a new god late, I'll be honest. Um... <laughs> this is absolutely brutal. I am a deeply adversarial GM. <laughs> um... I'll be totally honest with you. I am playing every game to win, and by win I mean make my players like hate themselves. <laughs> oh, I I knocked the mic. Is that okay? That's fine. Okay, good. And so this does require a pretty specific relationship with your players, right? Because between the collaborative nature and the fact that things just keep going worse and worse if they roll sevens through nines on two d six. You do have to have a certain relationship with them uh, t to make this work. Yeah, yeah. Um, I find one of the things that, like, you really, like, Power of the Apocalypse games uh, really broadly can get really personal and, like, really uh, messy really quickly. Um, one of the things that, like, Dungeon, uh, Dungeon World cuts out that is in a lot of uh, other Apocalypse World games is, like, um, a lot of these games are, like, you know, very specifically, like, queer and about, like, relationships and things like that. Like, it's sex moves are very common in, in games. Like, when your character has sex, a thing happens. Uh, and, like, those are almost always, like, trauma-related. Um, yeah, it, like, these games get, like, really detailed and messy, and, like, a lot of the, the, like, player moves are specifically, like, about the ways in which, like, being the thing you are tears you apart. Um, and, like, yeah, uh, it gets hard, and you have to really establish um, a relationship with your players that makes them feel, like, confident at the table. Um, sorry, I just bumped my whole desk. Um, but uh, you really have to establish a relationship that makes your players confident at a table, and what I feel like that means is I, I, I establish a lot of safety mechanisms, and I make sure my players feel comfortable using them. Um, systems like Lines and Veils, uh, you hit pretty early on. Um, this, like, literally session zero, I, I make sure to talk through uh, lines being, like, things that will never happen in our story and veils being things that only happen off screen. Um, and uh, this is a thing you have to establish early and give players a constant, like, chance to update them. In later online games I've run, like, in the pandemic, I've had, a, like, a Discord channel for just lines and veils that anyone can add to at any time. Um, yeah, just, like, a, a, like a live list. Um, things like that are really uh, important to 
to keeping your game running smoothly and safely. Uh, and as much as I say I'm an adversarial DM, and I am, uh, it, like, the counters, the counterpoint to that is, like, your, your players get to win sometimes. Like, the different, like, you know, um, being adversarial and playing to win, I think also requires you to, like, throw up your hand sometimes and go, like, yeah, no, the, you guys really got the better of me here. You guys really did outsmart me. You guys really did kill the dragon in 30 seconds. Like, whatever it is, like, uh, you know, like, you've got it. And, like, one of the things I love about Dungeon World is that it really encourages you to lean into that and let players do huge and unimaginable things just because they, like, rolled really good on some dice. Um, some of the moves, like, almost require it. Um, sure. Uh, like, specific moves will let your players, like, rewrite history. Um, like, bards are totally capable of... One of the basic bard moves is that you can uh, uh, name a fact about a place when you enter it. Um like your players, yeah. Like like you're you could pick that at level two as your like uh, like level up move, um, yeah. Like uh, things you know your your players are constantly like encouraged to take like strong ownership of the game in a way that like makes makes the situations in a good game. And I I have been a part of and run games that did not go this way, but in a good game, leads to a space that players feel safe asserting something that might be more personal or at least a little bit like closer to the bone in one way or another uh and lets lets you do things like you know take things away that are really important um because it makes sense and it's for an interesting story Um, right like oh you lost your arm and also you don't get your brother back yeah yeah and that was a, a decision that was like justified that was a, a direction, like, I talked to the player, the player was interested in taking it, like, this was not, like, doing things like that, uh, you know, like, it, it puts your story in a really specific trajectory, and I really feel like um, you need to be a fan of your players as characters and as players. Um, and what that means is, like, let them have their wins when they want them and let them get their losses when they don't. And, you know, like, some of some of the players in that game, like, we came to the end of the campaign, um, and, like, uh, of the five players, we had, like, four mixed outcomes and one player who, like, everything went great for. Um, and it was just, like, really down to, like, what the players were comfortable with, like, what story they wanted to tell. And one of our players, our paladin, like, wanted a good ending for his character and, like, got the one he wanted, um, or at least an ending that was interesting to him. Um, I tried really hard not to, uh, like force my players down paths that were darker. I just let them, if they wanted to play in that field, I was totally comfortable playing in that field. And if they wanted to keep things a little bit lighter and a little bit more fun, we could do that too. Um, and you know, players wanted different amounts of that at different times. Some of my players only ever wanted things to go mediocre for their characters and for things to just keep getting worse. Um, and some of them wanted like a lot of wins and some of them wanted a few wins and some of them wanted no wins at all. Which is legitimately a really tricky thing to balance as a DM because you're kind of taking away some agency, uh, and saying, oh, you actually don't get to tell the whole story when you start having things not go the way they want them to. And this is something I struggle with as a DM, uh, when things don't go the way the player's describe them going and they roll high I find it difficult to say 
well, actually, things don't pan out 100% the way that you're describing, because it almost feels like I'm taking something away from the story they want to tell. So to get these mediocre outcomes, even if the player wants it, that feels like a difficult balance. Yeah, I totally agree. And a one that I think this campaign did sometimes suffer, uh, suffer from. And I think one of the ways that I uh, like, kind of like groped at a solution, uh, was to really like let the dice lead a lot of my decision making in that in that way. To like, one of the things I discovered uh, as I moved further into the campaign that really the less prep I did, the better. And what I mean by that is I had certain things laid out. Dungeon World has a really uh, interesting uh, GM system that's they call fronts. And they're kind of just like... They're like making every plot actor into a into like a monster that has a moveset and like a specific agenda. Um, and basically just like... like Can you give an you. example? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so for instance, like... Uh, there are, let's see, let me pull up my notes so I can actually have a specific example. Um, let's see, so here is one of the, uh, here is, I'm just going to scroll down to the first full campaign th front. Uh, actually, no, that's a really bad one because I didn't have all my notes. Um, yeah, here's a good one from about halfway through the campaign. Um, the players had, uh, kind of, like, come to, uh, like, be the wards of the, like, a, a, a young demigod, um, uh, named, uh, Starling Fox, um, who was the, the daughter of the god of death, Agrippa. Um, these two are both, uh, like, actors in this front. Um, what that means, you can have, like, three actors in a front, and they are, like, typed. Um, so, for instance, Starling Vox is subtype chosen one, or, uh, I'm sorry, supertype chosen one subtype to fulfill or resent destiny. Um, uh, you write a, a small description, now awaken to her true power. Starling has made a choice to either sit at her father's side or fight for her freedom. Um, you write a cast. Uh, and then you have a list of, of moves, um, and these basically are things that they can do on their turn. Um, when your players either don't say anything or um, fail a dice roll, you get to make a move. So, it, yeah, which, what I mean by don't say anything is, like, if your players, like, you say, what do you do, and they say nothing, you're like, okay, a thing happens. Now do you do something? Um, and when they fail a move, you get to make a move, uh, quote, as hard as you want. Um... And that's, that's a lot of power. And so some of the, like, so, like, as a chosen one, um, her moveset is, like, to learn forbidden knowledge. Attack a foe with magic directly or otherwise. Uh, spy on someone with a scrying spell. Um, recruit a follower. Uh, things like that. Um, and then from there, you have, like, a list of objectives they're trying to complete. And you can think of those as basically, like, if you know, some number of those objectives are complete, uh, a doom happens. I think they call it uh, uh, an impending doom in the in the rules text. Um, and that's basically, like, the goal of that malicious actor in this moment. So if they get to the end of their list of uh, objectives, here's the thing that happens. 
and you can like talk you can tell your players that in various ways um and so i've kind of lost the plot of what the original question was to like tie this back to um this is fascinating yeah (laughs) i can just keep going i'm really enjoying this yeah um sorry no problem oh um yeah so you can really like it's a really interesting way to and like you can do this off screen a lot too you can show little bits of this in this particular scene agrippa was attacking a town and so like if agrippa took territory i that didn't have to be the territory the players were in you know they could see the fires of a distant street corner um from the top of a building right like that's this you can work on a lot of different scales and in fact a lot of the end game content as we were talking about like time traveling gods and and uh you know like uh, the difference between, like, many possible futures. Like, a lot of these moves, you know, and, like, had to be displayed to the players in some way or another, but, like, a lot of these moves happen, like, mm-hmm. very far off screen. Um, and without a lot of, like, immediate context to the players that they would notice right in that moment that would eventually come around to this appending, impending doom. Everything you've described so far about the Dungeon World system... Uh, it sounds great to work with, and it sounds like, in a lot of ways, Dungeon World makes explicit the sort of planning you should be doing for any tabletop campaign, right? In terms of setting, what archetypes are these villains part of so the players can recognize that? What goals do they have? These sound like things that we should be doing for every campaign of any kind. Uh, Dungeon World just kind of formalizes that. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, Dungeon World really uh, t- spends a lot of its time uh, teaching, when you read the book, it is trying to teach you how to, better is a strong word, but run your games in a really specific way um, that uh, induces a certain kind of like spontaneous uh, play. Right. And it seems like some systems like Dungeons & Dragons or Pathfinder are very focused on the specific minutiae of combat and what are flanking rules like and what does it mean to be prone, but don't give you a ton of guidance on, you know, how to tell a story or how to incorporate this challenge rating 25 monster into a long-running campaign in a convincing way. Yeah, yeah. Dungeon World does a really good job of uh, teaching you how to use the tools it offers you, um, which I think a lot of, uh, maybe we call them like more traditional role-playing games, uh, often kind of like disregard that portion. Um, I think Dungeon World does a really nice job of uh, taking some of the like air of mystery that I think uh, both like the games and sort of the the community sometimes likes to put on Dungeon Masters as this like, oh, they're kind of, they're playing an entirely different game than you are. Um, is like very much the like feel some of these games give you. Um, and that's not, that's not always necessarily like what you want your game to be. And Dungeon World saying really like forwardsly and like, uh, really kind of, like, showing the players the backbones of the game in a lot of ways, uh, really emphasizes, like, that we're all, like, collaborative storytellers at this table. Um, and I think that... Mm, 
I think the game really uh, takes a lot of time and energy to get you thinking in that manner and also to teach you how to run your game such that neither you or your players ever up end up in this moment where it's like, well, that doesn't really jive with like a ton of planning I have, things like that. Like it's really trying to get you a little bit further away from uh, maybe thinking about like a script for your D&D game, if you think about it that way, right? A series of scenes that are going to play out in more or less the same order. That makes a ton of sense. I think one struggle that some people have when running tabletop campaigns in general is this fear of metagaming, right? Is this fear that you're going to give the players information about about the bones of the system or, or the underlying mechanics of the game. And they're going to use that to behave in ways that don't necessarily tell a story, uh, but rather further their character's goals. I, I guess, do you think this is something that in Dungeon World is less of an issue? Does the game have some workarounds for it? Can I be honest? I think the game encourages metagaming in very specific ways. Um, and by that, I mean that, like, what the players are capable of with their moves is often, like, really varied, but also quite specific. You have to be specifically trying to do a thing to activate a move that does a specific set of things, right? Um, so in some ways, it can be a little harder to, to metagame at all, because you have to just be, you know, when you say, I want to cast a spell, or... Maybe that's a bad example because that is a narrative action, but like, you know, like I want to activate my like, uh, intimidation ability. It's like, no, that's not what happens. Like, what do you do? Um, you don't intimidate someone, you bark a command at them. Right. Um, and that, that particular piece of difference, I think like makes it a little harder to metagame because you have to sit at a table with your friends and go like, well, uh, my character does this really bizarre and oddly specific thing that induces a really specific effect. But if that's what you're doing, the game totally supports that. Certain classes, like the wizard, are very much designed to be metagame. You're very much like supposed to know maybe a little bit too much about the, the world you're in inhabiting. Um, and the, the system provides very easy ways for players to uh, make things true about the like backbone of the world and then use them to their advantage. Um, I do think in, in certain ways that also encourage collaborative storytelling, metagaming is totally on the table. Um, I think it, it really does take a little bit of a, just like a shift in perception more than a, a shift in gameplay, um, to get metagaming, uh, to be like from the, like, in a and d game, it can be frustrating and like not really a, a like useful story thing to go like, oh, well actually like this is collaborative storytelling. Like we're, we have to like establish these things to be true about the world in order for them to be metagamed with, um, that can be more interesting because no one player has immediate active control over the narrative as a whole. No one player. And also the, the person running the game doesn't have that control either. Yeah. Yeah. I think also with dungeon world, it's, it's not as important to separate player and like person running the game you're doing very, very similar things. You're activating a list of moves with triggers that you're talking through. Um, in fact, Dungeon World encourages you to not have outcomes planned. It says play to find out what happens. Very clearly. Um, 
it it tells you to to not not particularly like like feel the need to lean in and tell a really specific gripping story that you've written out beforehand. It basically says like play our game and that will happen to you. Just talk it through. Just make a scenario. Um, and I think leaning into that and making your games more a collection of events that might happen, a powder keg, if you will, um, as opposed to a uh, dungeon, um, in the sense that like a dungeon is a fairly linear thing. Even though the game is called Dungeon World, I find it actually like not very useful for a specific dungeon crawl. Um, it just wants to go bigger than that. It always is trying to expand and grow, and like there are ways to do that in a dungeon, um, and I've just never found it to be anything other than exhausting. Um, just like that's when you get into you know like oh your character breaks their leg and like something like horrible happens and you have to like keep moving at that kind of speed because you just like things need to keep getting worse. People are gonna keep rolling sevens. Right, and so this explicitly would not support an adventure like Tomb of Annihilation, for example, where the you know the DM knows all this information about, hey, if you spend more than one minute in this room, the floor goes away and it's full of poison spikes. Like, you just can't do that kind of adventure where the, the suspense or the narrative friction all comes from the DM having a bunch of secret information that they've planned out in advance that the players either can't or won't find out. Yeah, exactly. I, I think there's a lot of, uh, you are giving up a lot of like granularity to DM when you play a Power by the Apocalypse game. They just don't support it. Um, and like when I want a more granular, I love Power by the Apocalypse games. I play them all the time, but when I want a more granular, um, crunchy, combat-heavy thing, I don't turn to these systems. Um, it, uh, there are a lot of other games I would, I would rather play than Dungeon World if I'm trying to do a dungeon crawl. Um, uh, yeah, and I really do think that like there is a, a, an important shift in perspective you have to have as a DM uh, walking up uh, to build a Dungeon World campaign uh, that like you're just losing a lot of granularity. You're lo losing a lot of your ability to uh, be hyper-specific in the way the world works. Um, one of the... Dungeon World has nine principles that the GM is to follow, um, and one that I find deeply important is uh, draw maps, leave blank spaces. Um, another on the list is ask questions, use the answers. Um, I think those two... Uh, really are what you need to lean into. You can't have granularity, but your players can. Um, you can ask, uh, I tried to avoid this, but sometimes it is correct to ask leading questions to get an answer that you like. Like, it might not be the exact answer you would write down if you were writing this yourself, but you can certainly guide your players in a direction when you're talking through this game. Um, and that's totally within the spirit of the game. Um, in the same way, you can also ask incredibly broad questions. When your players do something stupid and you have no idea what to do about it, you can go, I don't know, what do you think happens? Um, and that's a really powerful tool once you get the hang of it. Do you find, though, in some contexts, not being able to have forbidden knowledge or divine secrets, you know, information that uh, the participants in these fronts might have, not 
being able to have that out in the open limits the kind of story you can tell and the kind of stakes you can set. So maybe I, I, I kind of like missed a little bit here because I did find a lot of room to have secrets from my players. Um, there, yes, there's a lot that you lose. There's a lot of like specific uh, moments that, that players might not know. Um, but I do think it's us. You can shift the focus uh, from surprising your players or, or coming up with things that your players don't know. Um, and this is something that takes a lot of uh, like um, a lot of like strength on your players and a lot of like like sort of like mental fortitude almost to like do. But like if you can find a, a group of people who are really interested in a game full of dramatic irony, you can just tell them everything. And just say your characters don't know that. Play accordingly. Um, one of the uh, one of the things that we didn't talk about a ton in our game uh, was the specifics of the relationship between the two like mother gods who created and tried to destroy the world. Um, there were a lot of specifics to the relationship that like you know one of the players was wielding the sword that uh, Amash used to kill Lamash. That's not a thing the players knew for most of the game. You can totally have those secrets. Um, there were other wielders of that weapon. That weapon had been taken out and returned multiple times. That's a thing the players never knew until they asked the right questions. You There's totally the space to have that all in your head. It's just not granular. It's just you have to also be prepared to throw it all away when your player gets to be the one who tells you how the thing works. Um they will either ask you the right questions or the game will say, I'm sorry, but you have to ask those questions. And yeah, it's, you do lose a lot of that power uh, in those moments, but they're not all the time. Um, and also if you, uh, with a little bit of experience and a little bit of like hassle, you can really like, if something really matters to you, uh, you can find a way to make it happen. Um, you do have as much control as anybody else at the table. On one hand, it sounds incredible to give this much agency to the players and this much ability to kind of set the course of the narrative. On the other hand, that does seem like it is going to take a lot of work and a lot of kind of careful preparation and maybe even selection of players to make that happen correctly. You know, in, what do you do to ensure that your players are in a good place in terms of that collaborative storytelling, uh, moving things along in a direction that works for everyone uh, when you give them that much uh, control over the history of the world and the flow of the narrative. Yeah. Um, I personally love to run these games for either entirely inexperienced role-playing game pl players or people who are really experienced. Um, not that I won't play with people who have played a couple of games and are kind of getting the hang of it. Uh, or pe people who are moderately experienced, but I tend to find players who either have no preconceived notions about the hobby or players who have seen enough of it to have a fairly broad understanding of uh, the genre to be the kinds of players you can run a hyper-collaborative uh, game like Dungeon World with successfully. Because there is a lot of really particular ways you have to be able to think about this game. Um, you, you really need to be in a mindset that's uh, different from the way you might play uh, a game like Dungeons and Dragons, where in Dungeons and Dragons, it, 
it is far more important to be able to inhabit your one character really fully and understand your moveset really powerfully um, to, like, successfully, for whatever, like, that word means, play that game. Whereas in a game like Dungeon World, uh, you might be needing to think at a, uh, at some ways a lower level and in a lot of ways a higher level about, like, the space your character inhabits and the way that, like, reflects in on itself in a way that maybe you don't need as specific an understanding of, like, your character and your moveset. Um, that being said, uh, it just requires a lot of coaching. Um, there's just a lot of time where you have to, like, yeah, in this campaign, um, we had a player who, uh, was a little over eager. Um, uh, they were like a well-versed player, but they didn't often leave a ton of space in the like conversation for other players to like jump in and like take a move. If it was their turn, they'd maybe take like five or six like moves in a row before we like moved on. Uh, and that's just a thing we had to correct for. That's a conversation we had to have at the table. Um, briefly, we established a like one move a turn kind of like you do a thing and then someone else gets to do a thing before you get to go again kind of system. Um, that Dungeon World doesn't have by default. Um, ish, like particular, uh, uh, particular like mechanical systems that like stopgap that don't really exist in Dungeon World as it stands. And so you have to spend a lot of time with your players like getting to know them, getting to know how this group of people works. Um, and yeah, you do like take a risk and sometimes find that it doesn't pan out. Uh, I often find that if you find a group of people who are genuinely willing to commit to a, to a like six to nine month campaign, which is about the length that a lot of Dungeon World campaigns fall into, um, that they're often already at least a little bit predisposed to play the hobby in a way that you can uh, play with them effectively. Um, if you, if they read a little bit about Dungeon World, if they play one or two sessions and they don't go like, Hey, I don't think this is for me, you can be pretty sure that it's probably for them. Um, and what I mean by that is that Dungeon World at a certain point, I think it just clicks for a lot of people. Um, and the particulars of the like push and pull of narrative control, um, start to like fall into place and people really start to understand like, Oh yeah, I do have a lot of agency over my, uh, my particular character or, oh, yeah, maybe, like, <laughs> maybe I should let that player have a little bit more agency because they told me they needed it. And I do think, like, it requires a more, like, socially aware table. Um, but I do think that's a thing you can talk about with most people and get them there eventually. Um, it's just, like, as a DM, I think you need to walk in knowing that, like, you're going to do some coaching. You're going to like, and maybe you might need some coaching from your players too. I certainly did at certain points in this campaign. I like to take things as, as I've like mentioned before, I do like to take a dark turn when I am like allowed to. Um, I sometimes take that too far. Um, it's a really easy mistake to make uh, if you like that kind of thing. And just like having the ability for anyone at the table to go, no, that's not how my story goes. Uh, at the end of the day, having that, like, final, just like, no, I'm sorry, that's just not the story I want to tell, um, is super important, and getting your players to a point where they just feel confident going, like, no, is, is really important, and, yeah, it's just a lot of, lot of work, um, but I do think, like, if you're fundamentally interested, it is not an impossible, uh, load by any means. And it sounds like... For new players in particular, a lot of the learning about, as you say, the push and pull of narrative control is actually just going to come in the flow of playing the game. 
And so it's not like there needs to be additional coaching if someone has never played the game before. It's almost a learning by doing. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, you can catch in a new player's eyes when you're like teaching them Dungeon World or I think a lot of other Powered by Apocalypse games, but Dungeon World really specifically encourages you to do this. Like, the first time you ask them, like, what do you do? And they realize that you really mean anything. Like, they can do absolutely anything right now. And, like, just the, like, you can see it, like, shift in their head of, like, oh, my God, I have, like, I'm not... A lot of people who are interested in role-playing games might come from, uh, like, a video games background. Uh, or, like, reading a lot of, like, novels uh, or movies that are, like, fairly linear uh, series of events for the most part. And, they you know, you take, like, plot-relevant actions in a way that a game like Dungeon World, when you finally clicks and you really do have to, like... For some players in those first few sessions, just tell them, like, like, hey, like, I see what you want to do. I see that, like, the you're a guy with a sword and attack a goblin makes a lot of sense right now. But, like, you could do whatever you want here, man. Um, and, like, getting them to, like, get that and just be like, oh, I could entirely disregard the goblin and go do another thing over there. Um, or I could, like, approach the goblin any number of ways. Like, there is nothing that here that says goblins can't talk to me and aren't reasonable people. Um, you know, like, or, you know, maybe, like, maybe you just roll good and the game gets to say, actually, this goblin is a reasonable guy. Um, those are all possible in Dungeon World. Um, and just, like, getting the players to finally realize that they can do anything and we'll just have to go with it, um, to a certain extent. Uh, it's really liberating. Um, and I do think that a lot of players uh, find it quickly. Some players find it quite slowly. Um, I actually find that uh, people who are experienced in the in, in games tend to get there a little bit faster on average um, about that specific aspect of play. Um, uh, because a lot of new players just, like, they're a little hesitant. Uh, it's, it's a really, like... Um, running a table like this can be really fast-paced at times. Uh, it can be really uh, daunting to just, like, step in and be confident and inhabit your character and be like, no, I do this right now. Um, and it's a little... It can be easier to take a step back and, you know, in certain, like, scenes, like, play a side part. And, like, that's fine. Um, but you just want to make sure your players don't find themselves where their only comfort zone is playing a side part you want to make sure that like when it's your that player's time like turn and you know like something happens where no one else is in the room for whatever reason or like maybe everyone else is down and they're the only person left that they really feel confident going like i'm this is my moment to take this story into my own hands and do something um and yeah that can be a lot of work for for uh some people but yeah i think with a lot of encouragement and a lot of like uh, I, I say a lot at my tables when I'm ruling games, like, yeah, that's really dope. Yeah, you should do that. Yeah, like, like the cool, great. Just, like, build up their confidence to, like, just do things, right? Just, like, dope, awesome, hell yeah. Like, let's do this together. Like, like I'm super excited for you to, like, take big decisions. Um, and, like, building that, uh, that, like, confidence in the back of their head that it's, like, no one is actually mad at me for making big story decisions uh, is really important for a lot of new players. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to hear you put it that way because I've definitely experienced when I'm running games with someone who's only played video games before, that moment of realization that there's not a dialogue tree 
when they go up to an NPC. They can just talk about whatever, and uh, that conversation can go accordingly. I'd like to dig down a little bit more, if it's okay with you, into ways that there can be conflicts between people's visions and, and people's the narratives that people want to tell. Uh, earlier you mentioned that with some dark outcomes, uh, you know, it's gone too far for some players, or it's gone in a direction that they might not have intended for their character to go. Can you give some examples of what that looked like? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, this is a really dark joke. Uh, there's, a, there's a specific section of my notes titled, uh, The Gang Finds a Two-State Solution. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, um, and it, like... Yeah, uh, trying to, and, like, those are the kinds of situations where it can be really easy, uh, okay, so the specifics were, um, there was a war underground, there was a huge cavernous city that, uh, all of the dwarves, for the most part, lived in, um, that had maybe not always been theirs, or maybe the magic used to create it was not theirs to begin with, um, uh, the actual, like, creation of what happens there is is complicated, and there were, uh, like, quasi-terroristic military uh, uh, orcs uh, attacking the city, uh, claiming that this had, like, this was their, their land. Um, and, yeah, uh, that was complicated. The players came in, uh, and before they even knew who the orcs were, were a little bit on the side of the dwarves, just because... That's the people they were surrounded with. Um, and, like, yeah, they they tried to find a solution to this conflict. And, like, we tried to treat it fairly materially. And we tried to treat it fairly realistically. Um, and that just, like, was not a thing where I could get five people to sit down at a table and go, yeah, let's come up with uh, a geopolitical solution to uh, whose land is this actually. Um like, that was just, like, not a thing that we were ever going to find a solution that made everyone happy. Um, and so there was immediately conflict. And it took, like, half a session to, to just, like, get these players to, like, tell me what they wanted. Um, and, yeah, we came to a solution that, like, months after the campaign ended, one of the players told me, like, oh, if I had known it was going that way at that time... Um, I would have changed, like, I would have, like, put my foot down a little bit harder. But it was the end of the night, and I just wanted it to end. Um, and, like, that I do see as, like, maybe not a failure, because it became, like, crucial to the game in a way that, like, the players did kind of all like in the end, but was an overstep. Um, and I did, uh, you know, I I made that situation happen. Like, that's that that happened because I was like, oh, this is, like, an interesting conflict for the players to get involved in, and there'll be some interesting tension here. And what I didn't understand was that there, this was a question with no possible answer um, that would make everyone happy, I mean. Um, and trying to moderate that kind of conflict, sometimes you do have to, like, say, like, well, three people say this and one person says that, and I'm sorry, dude. Um, and that sucks, and you should talk to that player, and you should talk to all of your players to see if that's okay. Uh, and in this particular game, um, my players were, uh, by the end of it, like, totally willing to, like, like, not go after each other, that's strong, but, like, totally willing to, like, get into it, uh, like, with each other, but, like, what's a more interesting direction for this story to take? And, like, that was the thing that, uh, really, I feel like, 
is the direction that drives you away from, like, conflict is saying, like, is this an interesting direction for the story? And that was always the question I posed when it was, like, on me to, like, figure this out between my players, was, was, what do we all think is the most interesting direction? And sometimes people are going, like, well, I want a happy ending, but yeah, I guess I can see, like, that's why maybe not more interesting. Maybe that closes doors rather than opens them. Um, and trying to have a focus on, like, interesting decision-making eventually gets players in a state where um, hard, really, like, gut-wrenchingly hard decisions become the meat of the game because it goes like, oh, this is such an interesting place we're at in our story. Every possible answer is interesting. And suddenly it's not really an argument so much as just, like, I think we should do this. And then you go, like, well, really, like, this is the person talking right now. And we all like all of these answers. So it does take a while, and you t- I certainly had some, some missteps, but uh, yeah, you, you can find a, a ground where like the conflict is less player, it's, it's less like systemic level and more uh, like, like patternistic to the way the game runs, that we should be talking about at all times as we're playing this game, like, is this a good direction to take our story in? Um, and that kind of, like, really established ownership over the play space is what eventually gets you away from that conflict as people sort of, like, figure out exactly what it means to, like, share this space with the other players. This makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like there's not only tension between your vision of how the story is going to go when you set up this, uh you know, dispute, territorial dispute, but there's also going to be some tension between the different players' desired outcomes. And that's maybe a little bit uh, harder to mediate, almost. Because it seems to me that the, the tension between different players, uh, someone's going to end up having a, having a disappointment at the end of the day. Yeah, and I think Dungeon World has a really interesting solution to this particular problem. Um, it has a, a system called bonds, which are specific, like, it's like a sentence on your character sheet that's basically what I think about right now about another character. Uh, and this can be nasty, this can be nice, this can be anything you want it to be. This can be, like, uh, you, you have some, like, default ones to start with, and, you know, some of them are good, like, oh, this person saved my life, and I owe them one. Or, uh, or I owe them everything. Uh, or sometimes it's, like, this person stole something from me, or at least I think they did. Um, you know, like the, like, the game is immediately, like, this player conflict is part of what Dungeon World is trying to do, because Dungeon World is trying to tell a story about, like, fellowships, right? Like, Lord of the Rings style, like, this is a group of people who might not always agree, but we have to do this thing together. Um, and thinking about that in a way that, like, Dungeons & Dragons is also a game about fellowships, uh, but it does not at any point let you have a, like, mechanical way to get those feelings of, like, fuck that guy out. Um, you really have to, like, <laughs> you have to, like, resolve those conflicts outside of the game, whereas Dungeon World rewards you with XP for changing the way you feel about another human person, like, through the game. Did we do something to affect this bond? Every At the end of every session of Dungeon World, you go through like a ritual where you ask everyone at the table some questions like did we did we recover a notable artifact we all get some xp if we did that 
Did we defeat a notable foe? We all get some XP if we did that. Um, things like that. And one of them is just like, did something happen that would affect one of your bonds? Erase it, rewrite it, gain some XP. Um, and you can rewrite a different bond with that character. You can write a different bond with a different character. You can leave the spot empty and establish a bond at a later point in another session. Um, characters can have, I believe, three bonds. Um, uh, and this system really allows that, like, that, like, I'm mad at Wolfric because Wolfric proposed a two-state solution um, happen in play rather than at a player level. And, of course, you have to have some buy-in from your players to, like, at the end of it, step away and, like, debrief and go, like, hey, was this okay? Which is also in that, like, end-of-game ritual. It's not just about establishing XP. At the end of it, you, like, talk through the session. Um, there are other systems to do this. Uh, the Dungeon World one is just, like, a series of questions you ask. Uh, there are other systems that other people like better. Um, I've used other ones in my Dungeon World games. But uh, the one in the, the rulebook at least lets your players, like, have... Everyone gets a moment to go, like, yeah, I didn't actually like that very much. Can you tell us a little bit about the systems that you used that differed from that default one in the book? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, like, oh gosh, and now I'm blanking on, it's like one of those, like, silly, like, like, stars and spikes or something like that. I'm, I'm blanking on the actual, like, things, uh, the names for it, but basically, like, uh, you get to say, uh, roses and thorns, there it is. You get to say a thing you really liked and a thing you didn't like so much. Um, and, like, that's a really basic one that I like because it does not allow me as the, like, there is a place in which, like, even in a game like Dungeon World where you as the GM are trying to, like, remove the most amount of power possible, there is still that word master in your game title, right? Like, there is a thing going on there that is a little bit of a power dynamic and there's, it's just inescapable. Um, and you can do everything you can to level it, but at the end of the day, you're controlling 900,000 characters and they're controlling one. Um... Maybe two. Uh, and, like, that particular uh, difference is really, like, really noticeable. And even just being in the position where you're asking a player directly to tell you to your face, like, is this a thing I didn't like about the way you did this game, can be a little challenging for some players. So establishing a system where you can, like, say a like and a don't like. And I often, um, and this isn't, uh, this isn't anything more than just, like, a way to kind of get the players, like, ready to do it. I would often go, like, hey, I think I, I you know, if I, if I were something where I was, like, I kind of regret making this decision, uh, I think there are more interesting ways I could have played that. Um, I would point that out in the game, you know, it's, like, it's kind of too late now, but also it isn't. We can rewrite anything we did at any point. Um, it might take some work. We might have to, the next session might start 20 minutes, actually, like, back in time, if you think about it, um. And, like, we do have to rewrite that last part. Uh, and, like, that's totally acceptable. It takes a lot of work, but, like, you can totally get, like, if your players want that, you should do that. Um, and, like, getting your players in a place where they can feel like they can say something like that to your face is really important. And then you have to be a, a, a you know, take that with enough grace and work on it instead of going, like, well, that's your thought. I will say when you're running a game, it is tempting to be the dictator. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, and, and all the systems you've, you've mentioned here, all these post-game rituals, to me, they all seem better than something like gold is XP or killing high-level monsters is XP. Because I think in a lot of the games that we run, those aren't the objectives for a lot of the players. And, and those 
leveling systems and XP systems from kind of earlier tabletop games don't reflect with what a lot of players actually want to get out of the experience, which is not uh, go to the dragon, kill the dragon, take the horde, uh, but rather you know telling a story about people interacting. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, I think Dungeon World does a really good job of incentivizing the players to do the things players often want to do in games like this. And don't get me wrong, you still get XP if you kill a big thing. Like, your, your, your guy at the table who really does just want to kill the dragon does get to just kill the dragon and get the points. And the best part is, if, if anyone kills the dragon, everybody gets the points. So, like, everyone's really excited about stuff like that. It's cool to have that guy at your table. Um, in the same way that it's cool to have the thief who might, like, take 20 minutes out of the session to go and, like, steal an important artifact. But, like, yeah, he did that and you got an XP for it. Um... And that's that's really that's really cool. Uh, and that uh, particular ability to uh, like incentivize lots of different kinds of play that uh, and, and but with a focus on the narrative aspect of it, right? Um, the thing that uh, the thing that Dungeon World uses to like describe like loot that's worth XP is notable. Um, you know, like it's not just like oh, it's a hoard of money. It's like oh no, this is. You know, and maybe that is notable in your game. Maybe maybe you are playing a game where, like, oh, I stole a million dollars is, like, a really big thing to say. But maybe you're playing a game where that wouldn't matter as much, but you're like, oh, but I stole the princess's, like, communication ring. And then, like, oh, that's, you know, like, anyone could make one of those for $10. But, like, oh, this one's really important is, like, a really interesting uh, way to, like, reframe those sorts of questions while also letting the players just do, like, did we do something that, like we feel is just important. Like, did we, like, even without, even if there's, like, a huge amount of materiality to it, did we do a thing this session where we all walked away from it and went, like, the story progressed in a meaningful way? Um, and the game rewards you for doing that. I'm gonna ask you a question that I should have asked at the beginning, if that's okay. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> So can you give us a brief synopsis of the campaign that you were running? Yeah. Um, so uh, the campaign uh, took a, a few different directions and had a, a couple of sort of like story ideas that we went into and then sort of threw away uh, as they became less interesting. But um, yeah, uh, the players were basically dealing with uh, the players who were a, 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 a druid, a ra- a ranger, a wizard, and a cleric, uh, a paladin joined later, um, who were moving around, kind of, like, encountering these, like, strange beings from other worlds that some of whom were known, some of whom were not as known, uh, until they finally encountered the clerics, uh, or who the cleric thought to be was, uh, their god, and in a climactic failure, um, received, uh, a like, divine message from a different god entirely telling uh, them to pull a knife out of a, like, statue that they saw in a basement, and it turned into this ancient and powerful uh, god uh, that was locked in this forever war with her, um, it eventually turned out to be her uh, wife, uh, that were sort of these gods of, like, order and chaos, and... um, from there, the campaign sort of uh, swirled around them and the way that the various uh, new gods 
uh, had interacted with them uh, as the new gods began to like take sides or choose not to take a side at all and get in the fight. Um, and as sort of like the world began to collapse in on this like climactic battle that was to happen that would probably uh, destroy um, many of the lives of the people in the in time, the, the sort of like material plane. Um, for lack of a, a better word, um, in uh, in the back part of the campaign, the players sided with a uh, the the new spider god of the moon, um, and eventually took down uh, the gods, meaning uh, the the old gods Amash and Lamashed, and sort of like trapped them back away for the cycle to repeat again in a very very long time. This game sounds so cool. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It absolutely sounds like it. While you were preparing for this game, although maybe this is not super preparation intensive, while you were running this game, is there any media that really inspired you or that you found yourself drawing from? Yeah, yeah. Um, so the first like huge point of inspiration... Uh, like just to like the basic like granularity of play is a is a dungeon world podcast uh uh or at least some seasons of this like actual play podcast are dungeon world uh it's called friends at the table uh i at some points just like lifted enemies they had designed really well uh and things like that just like huge amounts of inspiration taken from that and i definitely need to cop to that um as well uh i am a huge uh like Oh, the kind of, like, genre trash sci-fi uh, sci and fantasy novels that are just, like, really, like, high concept, but in just, like, the worst, least understandable way. Um, I'd point at, like, Hyperion, which is a novel by a guy whose name I'm blanking on. Um, uh, Dan Simmons. Um, uh, that was, like, a huge inspiration. Uh, as well, um, the, like the uh philip pullman series uh his dark materials uh that's the golden compass books um the northern lights books for our non non-american friends um those are like a huge point of inspiration for me specifically the third book the amber spyglass i took a ton of of uh material from um trying to think uh there was a specific anime i was watching a ton of that i was like thinking about a lot that i wrote down the name of and on a piece of paper and not on my notes and i've since lost the piece of paper um it wasn't full metal alchemist was it no one of my players was watching full metal <laughs> alchemist we got there a lot uh, though i yeah yeah th there were huge yeah my players took huge inspirations from uh various uh literary sources that i could not even guess at, but Full Metal Alchemist is one of the more obvious ones. Um, yeah, uh, I think I was watching, I was obviously watching a lot of Berserk. That's what it was, obviously. Um, was just like a really, really grimdark fantasy series uh, that I was, I was like drawing a lot of the sort of like uh, minutia of, of combat from. It also seems like in a campaign with this much collaborative storytelling, I should almost be tracking down your players and asking them what media inspired them as well. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, yeah, there was a lot in that game that did not come from me at all. Uh, like, huge portions. Um, you know, like, the two gods who ended up being the sort of, like, focal point of the campaign, um, they just, like, 
they were entirely the creations of my players. Like, I had very little control in, like, what the symbolism was, like, what the, the people who believed in them believed. Um, you know, like, huge aspects of, of basic play um, my players decided. And, yeah, I just, I do wonder what books they were reading. I never asked. Can you tell us about any resources you might recommend for putting together a game like this? Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Friends of the Table has a really easy way to like uh, get in. Um, I would read. Uh, I would just read the Dungeon World book. If you want to play Dungeon World, just like read the whole book cover to cover. Um, it really does try to teach you to play. Um, Adam Koble, one of the the designers, uh, used to stream. I guess I don't know if he still does, uh, but he did a whole series of like lessons on how to play the game um, that uh, and like how to run the game that are hugely useful um, as well. There's like a different role-playing game that I would recommend reading uh, called stars without number. Um, it has uh, it, there's a, the, this section is free on the internet um, and it's just a like how to run role-playing games uh, section like in this book that is like really broad um and, like, not terribly specific to Stars Without Number itself, which is, like, a very light system to begin with, um, and is just, like, hugely focused on, like, how to how to run um, that game, or how to run games well. Um, and that's, that is my, my touchstone for running role-playing games, is that section of Stars Without Number. These are incredibly helpful. Prim, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this game. Yeah, thanks. It's been a ton of fun, and I'm so glad to talk about one of my favorite games. That's all for this week. Thanks, Brim, for taking the time to chat with us about your campaign. I've been Jake behind the mic. And I'm Production Master Riley. And that low rumbling sound in the distance means that the seal is breached and the portal is open. Join us next week when we chat about the Dungeon World system in a little more detail. For more on the show, including links to all of our social media, visit folderfrequencies.com slash campaign spotlight.